Okay, great. I'm here with Dr. Stone. Today's July 14th, and felt like this was a good opportunity for us to have a kind of an informal conversation about pain management, given that we're expanding our formulary to include things other than fentanyl. So those of us who've been doing this a while remember when our only option for pain management was morphine. Then many years back, we got Tylenol, which was available for both BLS and ALS clinicians. And then just this month, we got ketamine, which we've talked extensively about in the context of excited delirium. We've given it seven times to date, and five of those seven uses were for pain management. Then we have Toradol, which is coming on August 1st as part of the 2020 Maryland protocol as a jurisdictional option. And we are going to be taking that jurisdictional option. So we'll have Toradol as well. So now, a lot of options, right? We now, for the ALS clinician, we have Tylenol, we have fentanyl, we have ketamine, we have Toradol. So, Dr. Stone, is there any reason for us to not manage pain in the pre-hospital setting these days? Well, that's, a, that's an excellent question. I, I do think that for a, a long time, the literature out there did show that we as clinicians, not only in the pre-hospital setting or out-of-hospital setting, but also in the emergency department, uh, may have been under-treating pain. If you go back far enough, the problem with that was there was such an emphasis on scrutiny of the, uh, the use of uh, pain management in the hospital that people uh, you know, felt like they were being somewhat penalized if they didn't make everyone have a smiley face in terms of their pain management. And then along came the opioid crisis, and there were some people who felt justifiably between a rock and a hard place in terms of, well, uh, you know, uh, if, we, if we go too far one way, look, uh, we have the opioid crisis. If we go too far the other way, then we're, then we're back to maybe overshooting and having uh, patients uh, unreasonably be uh, not managed for their pain. But in the out-of-hospital setting, if you remember, you know, especially in a municipal 911 setting, we don't have long-standing management responsibilities for patients. And so I think that overall, we, especially as ALS clinicians, really have to be mindful that a lot of what we do in advanced life support is to relieve human suffering. And you'll hear uh, my EMS duty officers talk about that. And uh, philosophically, overall, I think we should be reaching out and looking for reasons to ask about how the ALS role on the scene can include pain management. So uh, it's a long way of saying, yeah, I think we ought to be uh, more sensitive to it when the path of least resistance would be, hey, the person looks really stable. Are they really a BLS patient? But if they're very uncomfortable, you know, we're ALS clinicians. Can we relieve human suffering? And that's always been a, quote, stonism, unquote, uh, to be part of the, the culture, which I'd like to uh, encourage in our department. So yes on that. Uh, and we have more tools than ever before. And that's why we're here today. Great. So when do we use each one of these medications? We're moving from only having fentanyl and Tylenol to now having uh, expanding that to, to having ketamine and Toradol as well. So is there a strict hierarchy for use of those medications? So uh, a lot of people do make fun of you for not uh, being particularly brief, but I will start by answering the question with a one-worded uh, answer, and that is, no, there's not a strict hierarchy. And the reason I say that is because generally, you know I've been a supporter of the, uh, especially the ALS clinician as just that. Uh, an independently licensed person practicing the system under their medical director's oversight. And so I, I want to, in an overarching manner, really allow the clinician 
who has to face something different about each patient, I would like to allow them to feel like they can inject their overall clinical judgment based on the totality of the evidence. So that's why I say not a strict hierarchy. When we talk about a way not to necessarily memorize in preparation for when, you know, if we see this, give that, if we see that, give this, what I'd like to remind folks is about the pharmacology of medications. And so think about the fact that each of these pain medications is in a pharmacological class. And that category, that class, you've learned it in ALS class, right? So we know that Tylenol affects pain through some still as yet unknown uh, mechanisms. Some are known, some are not. But suffice it to say, it's not an opioid receptor antagonist. And we already know that, you know, based on the fact that it's an over-the-counter medication, that, that its indications are for mild pain. So just as the Maryland Medical Protocol talks about, you will get people who present with worries that are potentially secondarily associated with pain. They feel miserable for one reason or another. An example would be a strep throat or a bad ear infection in an adolescent or, or a mild, you know, they stepped off the curb and they, they can't stand back up again, but their pain is not horrific or, or even moderate and they're not bleeding, they don't have a big bruise, you would look at that and say, could this patient be a candidate for something like Tylenol? And certainly the protocols allow for that. And I was actually thinking it was quite a, uh, kind of ironic that the contraindications for Tylenol in our, in our system are actually more lengthy than for other medications that you might uh, think have larger contraindications. But in short, you, you wouldn't want to give Tylenol to someone who's head injured, if you know someone has bad liver disease, they have cirrhosis, obviously you know that Tylenol is metabolized in the liver, so you wouldn't want to give it for that. You obviously can't give it to someone who can't take pills or is persistently nauseated because you have to medicate them for that. And uh, inability to swallow medicines, you know, because Tylenol comes in only a pill form. So if you have the totality of evidence of someone who fits in that, you know, mild pain category and they don't have these contraindications, they don't have liver disease, they're not allergic to Tylenol, then a reasonable BLS or ALS provider may say, hey, well, that's, that's the first choice. That's the hierarchy there. So mild pain, always think about whether a patient is, uh, is uh, a candidate for Tylenol. But if they aren't, then you would move on to how bad is the pain, where we, where we classify it, where I'd like to relieve human suffering, and then you move from there. And the other example would be, suppose you know the patient has mild to moderate pain, but they also have a fever, and you know the fever is 102. Well, you don't have to worry about masking the spike on a borderline fever. So you give it because giving something for the fever might help. So again, totality evidence. And, and that's the independent licensed uh, practitioners that, that I'd like to see us be able to do with the tools that we have in our toolbox. So that's Tylenol. So get into, uh, get into the ALS medications a little bit now. So in some of these cases that we've given ketamine in the last couple of weeks, a month ago, fentanyl would have been the primary medication. And now people are switching to ketamine for you know, moderate to severe pain, a couple of burn patients, shooting, hip dislocations. What do, you, what, do you, what do you make of all that? And where would, you, where would you put ketamine, if you just looked strictly ketamine versus fentanyl? I guess let's start there. So that's, that's a great uh, question. And it's kind of the, the crux of the biscuit that I think many of our ALS clinicians who are new to ketamine are gonna be kind of asking. So remember I said a few minutes back that we probably should know a little bit about the pharmacology of, of the medications that we're charged with using in our formulary. So think about it. When someone has 
let's just say severe pain, something a little bit more than moderate, because we're going to talk a little bit about Toradol later. But let's say something where you think the totality evidence is this pressure hurts a lot, right? They have a high pain scale, right? You know that one of the big neural pathways involved in, in transmitting pain is the opioid pathways, right? And so they have receptors that are blocked by opioid receptors. Then you have ketamine, which is an anesthetic. It's an anesthetic. It's a dissociative anesthetic. So even though the primary pathway by which ketamine works is not the opioid receptor, and the science says that secondarily it can, it can hit the opioid receptor, but not as its primary pharmacology, then the question I'd like us all to ask before everyone says, boy, I loved it when I used that one time. Let's make this, it'll be my go-to medicine first. This is where I want everyone to question the hierarchy and keeping that independent clinical judgment I talked about intact. Think about asking yourself, why am I using an anesthetic as my primary go-to medication in this particular case? If everyone asks that question, that's the first step I'd like them to take. And then if they come up with a goal-oriented reason why, yes, here's some evidence that points me in the direction of why I would choose ketamine over the fentanyl, then by all means, that's why we have it in the protocol. So I wanted to take a moment to reiterate something uh, for those uh, podcast listeners that want to make sure that the message isn't uh, divergent. I wanted to reemphasize something that Dr. Buzzy had said, and that was that in the emergency department, he's not seeing, and neither am I in my academic setting, him in the, him in the community setting, we're not seeing a lot of uh, EM physicians using ketamine primarily as their pain medication of choice for moderate to severe pain. So they're not, so in fact, when, when the new users of ketamine come through the door and said, I use it, they're going to be like, really? So they might question it, or maybe that they may not be familiar. So keeping that in mind, the goal-oriented reason that Dr. Buzzy mentioned in his podcast was if you have a patient that's able to tell you, and many will, hey, I had some problems with my blood pressure last time they gave me morphine. I remember they, they had to pump me full of fluids and, I've, and I almost passed out. There's some evidence in the totality that, you're, that, you, that might allow that. And there are a growing number of successful former substance abuse folks who are very skittish about getting opioids just as recovering alcoholics who will always say that they're alcoholics for life, they view a, new, uh, you know, a single glass of wine or beer or liquor as a threat to them. Some opioid users that, that have been abstinent for a long time are beginning to verbalize that. And, and so there's an example of in the five uses where that came into play. So when I talked about you'd like to relieve someone's pain, you have someone who's had trouble with opioids before, you've had someone who is, wants to, not, to avoid them, or Joel also mentioned the, someone that you have evidence in your mind, reasonable evidence medically might be drug-seeking or shopping, then ketamine is, it might be a good goal-oriented option to go to first. But I wanted everyone to realize that, the, that ketamine is, a, is an MDMA receptor antagonist and, is a, and, and secondarily is thought to be a GABA receptor agonist. And GABA is an inhibitory neural synapse. When you're an agonist, you then, in, then you increase the inhibitory neurosensory input. And that's one of the things that's associated with its anesthetic property. So just remember, you're using a primarily GABA 
an MDMA receptor drug for pain where the opiate receptor is a tertiary use. So if it's goal-oriented and you're saying, hey, these are the reasons, then we've had all the, the, the two paramedics or three paramedics that have used it have already reported their, their success with it. And, and so in addition to what I mentioned about Joel, I also wanted to say that there may be some patients who have both severe pain that you think you know what's going on and that have a significant uh, heightened excitement uh, associated with their injury or illness uh, and painful condition. If you looked at their totality and said, you know, I could potentially potentiate their comfort by making their memory of the pain a little bit less when all is said and done, you sometimes can have success with ketamine as a single agent at the right uh, analgesic dose, the 0.2 milligrams per kilogram, and you're, you're essentially killing two birds with one Dr. Stone, no pun intended, but intended. And therefore, that would be another, a fourth example of a four-cause, well-thought-out reason. But absent those examples, Dr. Buzzy's and my examples, you have to ask yourself, am I dealing with a painful condition that is, that is an opioid-mediated painful conditions? I don't have other contraindications. We certainly in the emergency department lean towards fentanyl as our first-line uh, medication for severe pain. So I think that's a good synopsis of where I wanted to be having a stink and that is direct, that's uh, di directly related to to uh, uh, Captain Kaufman's original uh, question. Okay. So I'll, I'll turn it over and see if uh, you wanted to guide us. No, just to uh, follow in, up. In, just to follow up to that, do you can you give both fentanyl and ketamine at the same time? The proto not not trying to be a protocol medic, but the it's the the pain management protocol is very clear that you will give this medication or this medication or this medication. So is there an occasion where you would uh, give fentanyl and then ketamine right behind it for maybe that patient that you said is just uh, severe pain uh, and excitement related to their injury, but you've already right. met no. Right. So one of the things I'm going to talk about either later or I can just uh, knock it out right now is uh, my desire that we keep in mind, especially with a medication that although it's two years old in the protocol, it is a novel medication for us. I want us to keep in mind that it's a by the book medication. So I don't want us not really adhering to the spirit and mostly the letter of the protocol. I would say that our protocols do allow secondary follow-up medication doses, sometimes with, a lot of times without consultation. And I'm, I'm always a fan of standing orders. So if one starts down a path with one of the two, and clearly after one of the doses, you're, you're getting a pain scale and you don't feel that you have reach the end point that you want, I think generally what I do in the emergency department, a lot of other physicians, they like to stay on one path so they can say, I tried this, I tried the next step using that medication, the next step using that medication before they try to mix them. A great example, uh, and I'm just going to shortly use an analogy here is, we don't like jumping around between the beta blocker and the calcium channel blocker in the middle of the creek when we're, when we're trying to, to treat tachydysrhythmias and block the AV node and uh, stuff that has rapid ventricular response. So I tend to stick with one or the other before mixing the two prematurely. So I would say that there's medical reason to go ahead and use this, the ability to have a second dose. And, and if there's consultations allowed for further doses after uh, medical consultation, then we would try to stick with one before moving to the other. I'm not uh, aware. I, 
that that this protocol is really strictly not allowing you to ever try to use synergy. It it looks like most of our, our patients will be at a hospital before. That's a possibility. But if you feel you've maxed out on the ketamine, and then after that you have residual pain, then you may uh, you may actually I think proceed unless it's saying never in the protocol, you could proceed to a, you know, to your next step. But remember, if all you need, if, if, if what you really have is residual anxiety after you use fentanyl and the patient's pain is better, but they have anxiety, that may be where you don't want to just say, well, I'm going to give ketamine to hit both. Maybe what, what the person needs is a little Versed. So these are the types of individual clinical scenarios where I would have you think very carefully about trying not to mix the two as a first resort. I would make that not a first resort. Yeah, the protocol is not specific. You will never. It just says you administer an agent, and it's this agent or this agent or this agent. So yeah. what I'm talking about is, uh, you know, bouncing around after just trying one thing, trying another, trying one thing, et cetera. There's clear pathways to allow you for, for follow-up uh, bolusing using the same pathway. I would say that most of the time we're going to start to make a dent in our plan when we just use the single uh, doses. And, and one of the things you will get, are, are, and we haven't talked about this, is you can get synergy but, uh, between the uh, fentanyl and the toradol, but I will, I'll, I'll cover that a little bit after we dive into that. Okay, I'm editing the conversation a bit and inserting this comment here because it's relevant to what Dr. Stone and I just discussed. On the podcast page, I've added a link to a report that compares effectiveness of analgesics to reduce acute pain in the pre-hospital setting. This report was prepared uh, back in September of 19 by the University of Connecticut for the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. The purpose of the report is to evaluate effectiveness and harms of opioids compared to non-opioid analgesics as treatment of moderate to severe acute pain in the pre-hospital setting. And I'm going to warn you that the report is quite lengthy at over 200 pages, but I want to highlight a couple of key messages and conclusions. Uh, it says, and I'm going to read this now from page three of the report, the key messages are, as initial therapy in the pre-hospital setting, NSAIDs provide similar pain relief to opioids and may cause fewer overall side effects and less drowsiness. Acetaminophen may provide similar pain relief to opioids and may cause fewer side effects overall and less dizziness. Ketamine may provide similar pain relief to opioids. Ketamine may cause more dizziness or overall side effects, while opioids may cause more respiratory depression. And then a subset of that ketamine conversation is combining an opioid with ketamine may be more effective in reducing pain compared with opioids alone. And then it talks about if morphine does not adequately relieve pain, changing to ketamine may be more effective and more quickly reduce pain than giving additional morphine. So that's relatively new, right? And a couple of caveats, and I'll read this as well. Few studies have been conducted in the pre-hospital setting. We relied on evidence from the emergency department, and analgesics were primarily administered IV. This was the only route studied for acetaminophen. Uh, so uh, obviously, we're, we're not giving acetaminophen IV in our, uh, in our department here. So now I'm going to read a conclusion from page 9 which says, as initial analgesia administered primarily IV, opioids are no different than ketamine, Tylenol, and NSAIDs in reducing acute pain in the pre-hospital setting. Opioids may cause fewer total side effects than ketamine, but more than Tylenol or NSAIDs. 
differences in specific side effects between analgesics can further inform treatment decisions. Combined administration of an opioid and ketamine may reduce acute pain more than an opioid alone, but comparative harms are uncertain. So, and I'll skip the rest of that and just point out that I'm concluding that more research needs to be done. So then I'm also going to post a link to a study that is underway, and it's a collaborative effort between the National Association of State EMS Officials, NAEMSP, EMS Physicians, and the American College of Emergency Physicians. They're going to work together to develop evidence-based guidelines for pharmacologic management of acute pain in the pre-hospital setting. So that's going to be underway uh, and look for that in the next two years. So as much as we think we know in terms of uh, treating pain pre-hospital setting, we are still working on this. And uh, sorry for that little detour in the conversation, uh, but we'll resume that right now. Okay, well, let's get into that. So uh, Toradol's added in there, and you'd mentioned that maybe that would be better suited for moderate musculoskeletal pain or, or even mm -hmm. severe pain, maybe specifically related to a kidney stone or renal colic. So you want to talk about that a little bit? Yes. I, I heard through the grapevine that there may be some uh, clinicians who are a little bit skeptical because they've um, come across, you know, treatment failures with, with, the, with what is now a, close to a 30-year drug, I believe, and now us getting this novel Toradol. So I'm a big fan. What kind of, of pain might Toradol be a great first choice? And it would be uh, the moderate pain, because we, we, we talk about mild pain and then moderate to severe. So I actually would want to focus a little bit on the moderate, because I think it's one of our better tools. When you think about how does the pharmacology of Toradol work, it was essentially the first intravenous available form of a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, an NSAID, right? So as such, it would have the indications and contraindications that you would see for NSAIDs. And generally, some of the more uh, well-known side effects of NSAIDs tend to be in the folks who are taking it on a more chronic basis. So a lot of people have not seen a, you know, major problems with GI bleeding or, 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 or the like with a single dose of Toradol in, in the field, in, in, the, in the emergency department where we work. I haven't seen that. However, it's theoretically possible that a, that a dose of NSAID will sit on a platelet and give you some theoretical possibilities. So you're looking at a patient with moderate discomfort, They've, uh, you don't think they've broken a bone. You think they may have a grade two sprain or a or strain of a extremity muscle, a joint, the knee, the ankle, the elbow, the wrist. And you just don't think that you have to jump to the big guns yet. Again, your clinical decision-making. Toradol in the non-allergic patient, the person who doesn't have an ulcer, doesn't have a history of GI bleeding, or an allergy to NSAIDs, or florid asthma where they tell you that, hey, when I take Motrin, it, it sets off my asthma, then what you, what you have is a, a potentially excellent drug to begin to get some pain relief with a single dose in route to the hospital. Now, it talks about a 30-minute onset. I've, when, when it's given IV, I've had way more success with that in, in, in certain cases than, than having to wait 30 minutes. Nonetheless, it is true that Toradol will be associated with people saying, well, it, 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 it didn't touch me a lot, it touched me a little. And this is where I wanted to mention the synergy that exists that I saw over and over again in my 20 plus years of practice between 
giving toward all and then having to move to the next uh, phase. And that is a patient who's still significantly uncomfortable after toward all. Realize that we're only allowed to give the one toward all dose. So we don't have to go stay on that same path. The path is done. So I can tell you that a ton of patients that I see with renal colic or biliary colic, a, a gallstone, a kidney stone, you know, some painful abdominal conditions who, who, you, who you medicated with Tornol and then had to follow it up. Instead of someone asking me for more morphine in the 90s or fentanyl in the 2010s after receiving uh, just, an, uh, you know, the previous, you know, opioid dose, I was rebolusing every two to four hours because they get painful again. I had multiple patients over the years who after receiving Tordol and the one dose of whatever it was, dilaudid or morphine uh, back in the day, that, it, th- that there were synergistic effects and they, did, they, they tend to be more comfortable for, more, for longer. So Toradol, which I left for a separate discussion, I, I, I do think that it, it, it's either had a, a, a fair amount of success in moderate pain, and when you move on to having to give a, a, a dose or two of or, or fentanyl, that patients have, have seemed to have a little bit longer lasting pain when they're used in conjunction. So Toradol really is, uh, you know, also a by the book, but it's only a one-time thing. And, and I, I think it does help in certain painful conditions where the NSAID pharmacologically is working on mitigating the inflammatory response that happens after mild non-bleeding trauma and in some of the abdominal conditions that I've mentioned. Uh, just keep in mind that the surgeons will tell you that's, that, they, that it's, it's theoretically considered on platelets. So if you have an open fracture that was bleeding, if you have a huge black and blue mark on a deformed ankle and you think, you know, this, this capillary bleeding by definition, I'm looking at a black and blue mark here, it's pretty bruised up, then I would endorse holding off on Toradol uh, using the contraindication of trauma with bleeding. If you think there's a subcutaneous hematoma or something like that, that yeah, maybe that's better to withhold the Toradol because like other NSAIDs, it has coagulopathic effects. So long-winded answer, but again, you'll see that what I'm talking about is this thought process that starts out, what kind of a medicine is this? What receptors is hit? What is the actual mechanism? And yeah, that will help in this case if there's no contraindication. Okay, great. Thanks for breaking all that down for us. Just a couple operational reminders for everybody, specifically with recordation of what we're doing. So with these weight-based medications, we really need to record patient weight uh, in the EMEDS report. And then when we're treating pain, we want to make sure that we're documenting the pain scores multiple times, both before and after treatment. And I just want to point something out that I noticed in the protocol in preparing for this, that is patients who've received a dose of an opioid or a benzo or ketamine from either a facility at which we're picking up a patient or by ALS, that patient needs to be transported by ALS. We uh, should not be treating those patients and letting them go in the ambulance by BLS. But that raises the question, can an ALS provider administer Toradol to uh, say, say that isolated uh, extremity injury or fracture and then let the patient go uh, downgraded BLS to the hospital? Doc, do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, I think that it's another one where the answer is make a very reasoned, rational analysis of where you are at the time of the downgrade. So I think in the case of trying to help with some pain mitigation with a non-opioid that doesn't usually have effect on hemodynamics, rather than, in other words, having incentive to feel enabled to do that, 
should be uh, should be because I don't want to have someone omit something that's better for the patient simply because they're on the hook to transport that person. Therefore, the person never gets a tortle. It's a little bit the analogy here that I would make is we wanted to not hogtie the acquisition of a low probability EKG uh, to to upgrading because we didn't want to provide a disincentive to get the EKG as a as a further tool in the first place. This is a therapeutic analogy in that I think that there's some that in a moderate painful condition that has uh, many BLS overtones, but you want to do a little bit more for the patient. I think that giving toradol is not the same as giving ketamine and and an opioid, which have a lot which have longer lasting side effects. Not uh, not the least of which we haven't talked about is that's accidentally uh, delivering a dissociated patient to an ED physician, right? Because that's not what we're trying to do with with pain management. Excited delivering, different story. But but pain management, we're, we de we definitely don't want that side effect. So you know you own the patient when you give them those more hardcore medications. But answering your specific question about toradol, I would just ask myself: Is the patient the type of patient that was otherwise the same type of stable patient? You'd go through the the BLS the, the, the LS downgrade checklist and say, yeah, this person really meets those criteria. Otherwise. Do I really have to go only and simply because I gave Toradol? I would say the answer to that question is probably no. So I want us to relieve human suffering, use the tools we have. I don't want to hogtie, but always when you give that medicine, ask yourself, is that going to be enough? Should I be monitoring them to find out if really maybe they need more? And, and, then, and then in the case of like deformed ankles, don't forget those distal pulses, right? <laughs> it's, you know, it's BLS, but don't forget those distal pulses. Certainly the, answer, the overall answer to that long-winded Usual Dr. Stone answer is, you know, think about it, and it's it's not strict, it's not no with Toradol. I chuckled to myself when you said, I think this one's going to be a relatively short podcast. I said to myself, <laughs> have you ever heard yourself answer a question? <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you very much. Any closing words? Yeah, well, so I did want to, uh, to close with um, with a little tidbit that I've been thinking about and reminding are folks about PubMed, the uh, the NIH uh, National Library of Medicine, uh, you know, publicly available website where you can put in a lot of keywords and just get a bunch of just a bunch of stuff about any keyword you put in. And so there's a great pharmacological review as recently as 2018 about ketamine and ketamine metabolite pharmacology insights into therapeutic mechanisms. And so I'm reading that, and it's a great synopsis of just what was in the title, you know, what it is, what, what receptors it hits, uh, what are the clinical therapeutic effects, and, uh, and, uh, and what are the dosages when used in general anesthesia, analgesia, anti-inflammatory, and, and um, it, what's interesting is it's not mentioned excited delirium, which was the major indication that started us getting this new uh, medication back in 2018 because Haldol was not the drug of choice for that for many reasons. The QTC interval, the excitement, the fact that Haldol may not be able to potentiate the degree of excitement in XDS. But if you, if you read this, um, it does talk about the fact that, that although ketamine uh, does, is, is absolutely a, one of the, one of the, a drug with a safer uh, index in terms of hemodynamics, that it still has a potential for abuse. And in, uh, in patients who are hit with a dose that's a little too high for the pain med, 
and results in some dissociative symptoms, those symptoms can be very close to what what the street has dubbed the term the, the K-hole. And the K-hole is what recreational users try to induce by taking the doses. And it's very often they snort it. Uh, sometimes they'll take it as a pill. But what they're trying to do is feel out of this world, right? So think about if you actually accidentally, you know, if you don't get the weight right, if you actually deliver too much of a dose to a real skinny patient, and you start to move towards those dissociative states, you get uh, some really uh, crazy out-of-body type experiences that the, that the recreational users call getting a high in it. And so if you, so number one, you have to be aware that, uh, of this K-hole state enough to be, on the, to be on the lookout for it once you've used the medication, even if you use, your best guess is you used it correctly. And so monitoring the airway, monitoring all the numbers, uh, and, and monitoring the metal status. And just realize that if you, de- if you deliver a, de- a partially dissociated patient to an ED, you have to sort of make sure that you, uh, when you hand off, you know, explain to the doctor what you, what you did so that they know what p- potentially to expect. I mean, you're dealing with an, with an anesthetic. This article in PubMed is a great uh, ALS clinician uh, dive into the more uh, academic literature uh, and, and, and does a great review of all the the things that one one should know or could know about about ketamine. So don't forget the PubMed's out there, and uh, it, it it has a whole range of access to to many many articles. Once you put in a keyword, you get a ton of stuff. And so I, I just wanted to leave you all all with that um, that reference. And uh, ketamine is a you know is a very very good addition. I'm a, I'm a big fan. Uh, it's used mostly in the moderate sedation arena. But but if we if we have this life saving tool when it comes to excited delirium, and this great tool when when it comes to selected for cause analgesia, and um, you know it's it's a win win for the public that we're equipped with this. So that's how I would uh, end my part of it. Great, thank you for your time, Dr. Stone, and thank you everybody for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye bye everybody. Keep up the good work.